0: I stayed away as long as I could and avoided Mark 13, but I had to come back this week. So we're back to it. Mark 13. Um, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6, and um, I'll explain to you why you have that piece of paper in just a minute. As he came out of the temple, that is Jesus. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. God, please um, bless the reading of your word, all of the word that we have read today, and um, I pray that we will listen to true prophets, and especially Jesus, the one true prophet of God, and that we'll hear his words, and that the Holy Spirit will teach us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I think I've already said this, but I'll say it again. This is one of the most contested, controversial, and interesting passages in all the Bible, not to mention the New Testament, for certainly it is one of the most hotly uh, contested passages in the New Testament. Remarkably, it's one of the passages used by a lot throughout church history, a lot of people, to claim that Christianity is not a valid belief system. They go to this passage a lot. And I'll try to explain why as we go through this study. Um, mainly it's because of the way it's been interpreted. Um, people believe that Jesus made some prophecies and promises here that did not come to pass, and so they used this passage to call Christ a liar. Um. I've really struggled about the best way to teach through this. As you can probably tell, two weeks of uh, so far, and I really haven't said anything. But I've kind of said around a bunch of stuff. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to teach it. And what I really believe to be very important is that we look at the passage synoptically. And what I mean by that, obviously synopsis means together. And I want us to be able to look and see what Matthew and both Matthew and Luke say about this very same event in christ's life and so that's why i provided that printout for you You can see there um, mark 13 1 through 6 coincides with matthew 24 um, like 1 through 4 or 5 and luke 21 1 through 8 or 9 and so i want you to be able to look at those together as we go through it because very important and one thing I want to encourage you to try to do is to think through this. And in the process, try to push to the back of your mind or the side of your mind, or if possible, all the way out of your mind, all the things that you've ever been told about this. Because that's the biggest hindrance to interpreting it. We already think we know what all this stuff means. And often the clearest meaning of any passage is the simplest reading of it. And what we tend to do is we start reading these words and we, oh, I've heard this before. I've heard of this saying. I've heard about earthquakes and famines. And we in we instantly go to all the stuff we've been told and we don't just read through and see what does it actually say, right? It's one of the difficulties in interpreting this kind of passage, which is a prophetic passage, meaning... Jesus is talking about something that has not yet happened. And it's very difficult because we've already been taught what to believe about it. And we've read a lot of what's been written about it. And we've watched the movies about what has been said about it. And we assume a lot of things. Even our Bibles. I thought about this and I looked in different Bibles. I looked in the King James Bible and it headlined in chapter 13, verse 1, things to come. So even the Bible um, printers were kind of helping us about what to think on this passage. The New King James Bible I looked in, it says in verse 1 and 2, destruction of the temple, which I think is absolutely correct. But then beginning in verse 3, signs of the times. The ESV that I just read to you. Beginning in verse 3, signs of the end of the age. And certainly that is one of the questions you see in Matthew 24, the way their question was worded, they ask it. What would be the signs of the end of the age? The NASB titles this passage, Jesus Foretells the Future. So I'm just pointing that out to say that there's all kind of stuff already pushing down on us and, and into our brains to tell us what to think. And so there's a tendency to come to this passage with an already determined eschatology. Now, I've told, I've used that word and tried to define it every time. Eschatology simply means the study of end times, Right? the eschaton, the end of the age. And so what happens is that we come to this passage with something already in our brain about what we believe about the end times, and that determines how we interpret this. And so if you're familiar at all, there's pretty much three basic, broad categories of eschatology. And most of us would all uh, agree that what we've been taught is a premillennial, pre-tribulational, Somewhat dispensational view of the end times. Now there is a premillennial view, and it's very broad and multifaceted. And you can fit in there anywhere. There's a an all millennial view, which believes that there's not this kingdom coming way out there that's going to last a thousand years here on earth. It's a it's a belief that the thousand years is symbolic, already started when Jesus ascended back to heaven, and it will it will continue through the church and Christ reigning through the church for a symbolic thousand years at which during which time the gospel will will um will accomplish exactly what God wants it to do many will be saved the kingdom will grow and then Christ will return a post-millennial view that's the third view which basically kind of means uh believes the same thing as millennials, except for uh this reign of Christ is going on and will continue uh, through a symbolic 1,000 years and the gospel will pretty much conquer everything and Christ will conquer all his enemies and then finally he will return after this 1,000 years. In those three categories, there's all kinds of beliefs. And so um, I say that to say most likely when you come to a passage like this, one where you fit in those categories, usually people take that and then they determine what they believe based on what they already believe about eschatology, about what they believe in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. For example, I was reading, I took one of John MacArthur's commentaries home. I have almost his whole set back there. And I respect him. I've read him a lot, listened to him a lot in a lot of ways. I enjoy that, but um, a lot of my views are different than his, which does not mean anything other than that they are. But I was amused when I opened his commentary to Matthew 24, this passage, the Olivet Discourse, and he began his introduction this way. The teaching of the Olivet Discourse is much debated and frequently misunderstood, largely because it is viewed through the lens of a particular theological system or interpretive scheme that makes the message appear complex and enigmatic. So you would think by him saying that, he's meaning... I'm not going to do that. But other people do that. And he goes on to say, But the disciples were not learned to men. And Jesus' purpose was to give them clarity and encouragement and not complexity and anxiety. But then you turn over and get to the very first paragraph almost of his interpretation of the passage. And this is how he begins The message of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 is a prophetic sermon that sweeps the 12 into a time not yet come, a time that they themselves would never experience. So I just thought it was funny that even somebody uh, as smart and as well-known and as um, capable as John MacArthur, he claims he's not going to do something, but then immediately when he begins to interpret it, he takes his preconceived uh, ideas of eschatology And interpretative methods, and he imposes them on the scripture and says, Well, Jesus was obviously talking about something way down the road, nothing to do with what was going on in the lives of these people. And that's what you'll find in most commentaries. No matter what you read, who you read, you're going to find that most people are putting down every other view of this passage while holding their own with great dogmatism, right? And so I confess to you again, I do not hold dogmatic views on this passage mainly because there are several places in here in verses, phrases, that have so many different interpretations that it seems wise to be cautious at best. And so what we do know is that this is prophetic language. Jesus is telling about something that is going to take place in the future. Now the question is, how far in the future, how much of it is... To do with the disciples the people alive at the time how much it's to do with the future uh way out in the future and it kind of gets that's where it kind of gets sticky where do you interpret what but the cool thing about this passage is there's no other passage in all the new testament that demonstrates the deity of christ more than this passage because jesus is saying i'm going to tell you what's about to happen And then depending on what you believe about this passage, most, if not all, of what he said happened, just like he said it would happen. And so it demonstrates that Christ is God. Who else could foretell these events with such clarity and specificity and it come to pass? So even though you have people saying, I use this passage to say and demonstrate that Christ is not God, he was a false prophet, The truth is, the church has used this passage to say, look, there is none other like Christ. He is prophetic, his prophecies are true, and what he says is right. So we pick back up in verse 1. Jesus and his followers leaving the temple after this confrontation with the Jewish leaders, right? They're wanting to kill him. They hate what he said. He's flipped over the tables. He's told them they've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. And they leave from all of that, and one of the disciples looks at him, or several of the disciples, whatever, and they say, Look at what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Luke says, They, they, they say, Look at how adorned with noble stones and offerings are, is the temple. And we did last time, I think, talk about how magnificent this temple was, how large and beautiful it was, the temple that Herod built. It was truly one of the great wonders of antiquity. Somebody even said, I think I, I quoted to you, somebody said during that time, if you haven't seen this temple, you've never really seen beauty because it was amazing. And I talked about how big it was. The main part of it took 10 years to be constructed. It started somewhere like in 19 or 20 BC and continued all the way through um, really until Christ uh was crucified. It was still being worked on. Almost fifty years. In fact, in John chapter 2, you see we have that proof where Jesus said, destroy this body. He was talking about his temple, the body of his the temple of his body. You destroy this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Prophesying of course about his crucifixion and resurrection. But the Pharisees listening to him said, Who are you to say build this temple back in three days? It's been 46 years in the making and you think you can build it back in three days? So we know that it took at least that many years it was under construction. I can't imagine almost as many years I've been alive it took to build this thing. Kind of like uh, 75 Interstate. You know, it's never, it's never not been under construction as long as I've been alive. Some of the marble stones were eight inches thick, four feet wide, eight to 12 feet long that were laid on top of each other portion of the wall that still remains somewhat intact is 70 feet tall that wasn't even all the wall it was huge it was indeed a noble building a sacred place nothing that any of jesus followers had ever seen could compare and so you can imagine they were astounded when jesus responded to them the way he did though this is not the first thing Or the first time he's mentioned that the temple would be destroyed. He's already been talking about it. And so Mark records for us Jesus' words. You see these great buildings? There will not be one left upon another, not one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. As for these things you see, Luke says, the days will come when there will be no stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. But prior to the cleansing in John 2 that I mentioned, Luke records Jesus saying these words at his triumphal entry, which was the week before this, right? The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I'll tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Would Jerusalem that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So you see that Jesus had already said this temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Matthew in chapter 23, prior, obviously, to 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, when he's weeping over Jerusalem, the same place he records from his perspective In his understanding, Jesus saying, "Oh Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Your house has left you desolate. So in other words, what Jesus is prophesying here is what he's been prophesying. Judgment is coming. God is sick of his people being disobedient. His prophets being false prophets, teaching the people wrongly, leading them astray, lying to them, turning the temple, the place of worship, into a den of thieves, and judgment is coming. And he's been warning about it, and now he's about to get more specific and pointed. Israel's leaders had left her desolate, deserted, wandering around without the truth. And they had missed their time of visitation. In other words, God had sent Israel's Messiah and she didn't even recognize the Messiah, right? That's what he's saying. They were very proud of their temple, but they didn't understand that one greater than the temple was among them. All that happened in the temple pointed to Christ and he was right in their presence and they missed him. Men tend to be so proud of themselves and their deeds and even their religion, right? How sad that the things of their religion caused them to miss the purpose and the center of their religion. God help us to never have that kind of worship at Sovereign Savior where what we're doing causes us to miss Christ. And we get so clouded and deluged with everything around us and uh, uh, among us that we forget to rest in Christ. Pietism is the great enemy to worship. You look at yourself and your deeds and all that you're doing for God. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And God was about to bring judgment. And it was coming. And it was not far away. God is about to do what he had done often throughout the history of the world. He's about to judge his people through another people. And so when Jesus speaks here about these stones being thrown down... This is not the first time his followers have heard this. But this time, some of his disciples decide, we need to find out exactly what he's talking about. We've been listening to him say this, and now we've got him alone, so I want to ask. And so Mark says there's four of them. There are some of them. They come and say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, just a cursory reading... Without anything you already know, if this was the first time you are reading that, what do you think these things are that he's talking about? He just said, all these stones are going to be not left one upon another. They're about to be thrown down. He said all this stuff in chapter 20 of Luke, in chapter 23 of Matthew. Your, city, your, your people have left you desolate, your leaders... You've missed the day of your visitation. I'm about to cast you down, destroy you along with your children. You're about to be nothing. So when they say, Jesus, tell us when will these things be? I have a hard time believing that they mean when will these things, you know, 4,000 years from now be? It seems obvious that at least the best way to interpret the beginning of this thing is, hey, when will these things happen? When are they going to happen? These things you're talking about. And then Matthew does add the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Luke says, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And again, it seems like this is probably the key to translating the remainder of the passage. What you believe about that question, and this is why I pointed out early on, there's two or three questions here, and they're very important. What is their question? How does Jesus answer it? There seems to be little doubt that the bulk of their question is simply about what Jesus just said. When will these things be? I need to know. And what will be the sign when these things will take place? And when will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And the sign of your coming. And it seems that the sign of your coming parallels When will these things be accomplished? But again, it depends on how you interpret it. So the disciples have been listening to Jesus talk about this coming judgment. You've been left desolate. You've missed the time of your visitation. You've killed the prophets, and you're about to kill the Son of God, and the temple's about to be destroyed. And No no doubt they understood that the destruction of the temple was coming, and along with it will be other destruction based on how God had brought judgment in the past. And now, when Jesus is with them, they're asking them about these things, the destruction, the judgment, the casting down of the temple, the stones. They see all this coming upon them as judgment, and they want to know when it's going to take place. And it's at this point that most commentators begin dividing up into their camps. Verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13, almost every commentary you read will say, especially verse 1, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Even the most dispensational of dispensationalists, like Wolford, the great uh, great known uh, theology professor at Dallas Seminary, who is responsible for much of the his systematic theology is dispensationalism. He even agreed okay verses 1 and 2 Jesus is talking about the temple but beginning in verse 3 that's where things start to they start to divvy up but 1 and 2 is obviously talking about less than 40 years after Christ was crucified and ascended back to heaven in the year eighty seventy. 70 the, the temple that Jesus was looking at and talking about was demolished, torn down. The, temp- the, the, the city by that point had been under great siege, and we'll talk about that more, all the horrible, horrible things that took place. But from verse three forward, I remind you uh, uh, this is what MacArthur said beginning in verse three, the disciples are swept away into a time that's not yet come, one that they'll never experience. So for many, the disciples asked a question of Jesus, which seems pretty straightforward. When will these things take place? These things that you've been speaking of and you've just spoken of, the casting down the stones of the temple. For many, they believe Jesus' answers. It's about to take place very soon. Others think not so soon. And even others think way not so soon. And again, I don't have the answers to all this. um, But I find it hard for anybody reading this for the first time to think that all of this has to do with the time way out in the future that hasn't happened yet, because we even made it to the portion yet the, past, the, the the verse which Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, and we have to do something with that. What does that mean? And people have done a lot of stuff with it, and we'll look at it and see. But you have to determine because Matthew does add here and of the end of the age. So these signs of your coming, the signs of these things taking place, and the sign of the end of the age, we need to look at what that could possibly mean. And remember that for the disciples alive at this time, they would have understood that if the Messiah of God were here, then the end was near. Because they believed that when the Messiah did come, Israel's greatness would be restored, their prominence would be restored And they probably saw this as one event. The best they could understand it from the Old Testament prophets. So when they say, when will this take place? These things, your coming in judgment, which will mean the end of the age. But what age? Right? What age are we talking about? And we'll get to that. But if you look at Jesus' answer again, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign of the things that are about to take place? And the sign of your coming, Jesus answers, first of all, see that no one leads you astray. And all three accounts have this verse exactly the same. See that no one leads you astray. What a great indicator that what Jesus is about to say is going to get jacked up by people. And it does. All right. Jesus knew it and it has. And so for over 2,000 years, people have been led astray. And we talked about that a little bit in in the introduction to Mark 13. But even in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, people were trying to lead others astray. And there were, as he says here, there will be false Christs coming, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And this happened before 70 A.D., between when Jesus was crucified resurrected until the destruction of the temple, there were false Christs and there were people leading others astray. So it's not, we can't say, well, this didn't happen. It did happen. In fact, it seems in Acts chapter 5, there's an example of some people that came along and they were trying to lead people astray. They were, I don't know if they were calling themselves Christ, but they were trying to lead people astray. And they came to Nothing. Josephus, that we'll talk about more in the future, the Jewish historian from this time period, he records a lot of people who called themselves Christ and tried to get people to follow them. John confessed in his gospel that in his day there were many antichrists in the world already trying to deceive the believers. Pseudochrists, that's what false Christ means. So Christ's first words in response to the disciples is, Do not be led astray. Do not go after false Christ. Listen to his word. Listen to what I'm saying Jesus is saying to his people. So I say to you, look at this passage and see what it teaches. What is it saying? What is the most simple reading and interpretation? I do agree with MacArthur. I don't think this is enigmatic. We have a tendency to believe that the Bible is not for just anybody. You've got to have some kind of special... Uh, you know, gift from God to be able to mine the secret hidden things. And I don't think that's what the Bible is like. And men have done this forever. The Protestant Reformation was largely a result of men who said, you know what, everybody needs a Bible. And those who could read and had Bibles didn't want the other people to have them. For a lot of reasons, but some of it was Well, they're too ignorant, and they won't understand this. It's just for smart people. I don't think that's what the Bible is like. So don't go to the Scriptures thinking, Lord, I need to go get a seminary education and all kind of stuff before I can understand this. No, I think sometimes the simplest reading is the simplest interpretation. So I want to stress again this. The parallels in the, are important. Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24. I think it will help you in the days ahead as we study together if you'll read these. If you don't have any Bible reading scheduled for the next few weeks, read these three passages. They're kind of lengthy and just try to think through them. The Holy Spirit will teach us, right? I'm not the teacher. I'm a teacher here, but if you're going to understand God's word, it's going to be because of the Holy Spirit. And as we do study this passage, I want you to sense the glory of the first part of Jesus' answers to the disciples. They understood something cataclysmic was about to happen, they got that. Wow, something bad's coming. Judgment and destruction was rapidly approaching, and they asked Jesus for help, and the first words, our encouragement to not be led astray hey first off just don't listen to anybody that comes along don't be led astray later Matthew will say that Jesus recorded uh, he recorded Jesus words this way false Christ would lead astray even the elect if possible see there's a lot of glory and excitement in this so And I'm not suggesting this passage was only for the first century and it has no application to us. That would be ridiculous. It's the word of God, the living word of God. And if nothing else, I want you to understand this. No matter what comes, be encouraged about this. Christ will not allow his people to be led astray, even if it were possible. So I want you to be encouraged about that. It's not possible. And the reason is because we have the Holy Spirit. I remind you what Jesus said in John 14 before his crucifixion. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I know I sort of um, emphasize that point a lot in the beginning of this. Whatever we believe about this passage, what it should do is encourage us and not cause us fright and fear and sorrow. No, Jesus said, my peace... The Holy Spirit will bring to mind what words I taught you, and he will teach you the truth. So Jesus' answer to the disciples was to provide hope and assurance. And I think they do the same for us today. I remind you, we don't look at the daily news and then read backwards into the scriptures. I read the news for two minutes yesterday, and it was so depressing. And I could just hear people saying, Oh, look at there, more fulfillment of prophecy, more fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know. We read the scriptures and let them inform what we see around us. That's the proper way. Jesus was a prophet and he spoke about the things to come and those things did come and they will come. Nothing here should frighten you or cause you alarm unless you do not have faith in Christ. Because there is no hope in this world apart from Christ. And I think that's why the disciples come to him and ask him these questions. Okay, they didn't say, I hope we didn't understand you correctly. We we thought you said we we're about to be destroyed. We're hoping that's not the case. Clarify that. No, they understood what he was saying. But I think they went to him to say, Help us help us know what to do. And I love that the first thing he says, Well, don't be led astray. And sometimes we have to remember the things that the scriptures do teach like through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom. But we will enter. We could be deceived but we can't because it's not possible. But for those who do not have faith in Christ I want you to hear that there is no other hope. There's no other way to escape. As the Bible says how how will we escape when we neglect so great a salvation? When Christ went to the cross a few days after this teaching, that was bigger than any of this teaching. The teaching against or to warn them, don't be afraid, or this is coming, this judgment is coming. Even though they knew that was going to happen, once Jesus was dead and resurrected, they didn't seem so concerned about what was coming anymore. They seemed more concerned about telling people who Christ was because that was most important. Because judgment is coming. It's going to come no matter what. The only way to escape judgment is faith in Christ. and faith that he died on the cross for your sin. And that by trusting in him, your sin will be forgiven. And no matter what happens in this life, you will move to the next life to be with God in glory. That's the hope of the gospel, right? So I encourage you in that. There's a lot of stuff here and I feel like I'm still dancing around it but I'm going to get kind of more into it if you give me some patience and help me and read through it and uh, we might can discuss it some outside of the time when I'm standing here teaching because it's just me talking and you listening and so um, I'd love to do that during the week if y'all have time just call me and tell me the proper interpretation so I'll know it and then I'll pass that along to everybody okay let's pray Father we love you We thank you for your word. We do know it's truth, and the 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 problems we encounter in interpreting Scripture is not the Scripture. It's certainly not the God's Scripture. It's our uh, human flesh and sinfulness. So, I love what Jesus says near the end of this: "Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not." And so we know that uh, all the thinking of men, all of our um, theories. In our speculations, all that will fade and subside, but the word of God will, dwell, will last forever. And so we thank you for that. Help us to understand it in a way that will glorify you and bring joy and peace to the saints. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.